He's risen. You guys sick of Easter yet? I hope not. But it's odd for some, just like, Easter? That was like a few weeks ago. What's the next, what's the next holiday for us to celebrate? We're now three weeks after Easter Sunday, uh, but we aren't letting go of this resurrection theme quite yet. The ancient church calendar celebrates something called Eastertide, 50 days of Easter, really to sustain the celebration of what has broken into the world in the resurrection of Jesus. And during this time and during this season between Easter and Pentecost, we really desire to unpack all that God wants to Easter in us. Borrowing from Gerard Manley Hopkins, I like making Easter a verb. That God wants to Easter in you. Let Him Easter in us. What does He want to do through the resurrected work of Jesus in your life, in our world, in our church? But also, spending a little longer, deeper time in resurrection helps us to do justice to the the full range of Easter emotion. And typically on Easter Sunday, the emotions that we focus on are joy and excitement and victory, which are all appropriate, right? Because Jesus came back from the dead. The tomb is empty. It is finished. And yet, also, on that day, if you read the text and you read the stories, on that Easter morning when Jesus was raised from the dead, the Easter emotions that you're more likely to find in them, in the disciples, was more akin to tears and confusion and disorientation. Because the earliest followers of Jesus, they didn't expect resurrection to happen. And when it did happen, here's how they found themselves. They were kind of stumbling their way through trying to figure out what this Jesus back from the dead really meant. So Mary, a few weeks ago we talked about her, she's weeping in the garden with a man that she supposes to be the gardener. It was Jesus. Last week we talked about Cleopas, his companion, They're doing their seven-mile walk away from Jerusalem. They've left town. They're walking down the Emmaus Road. They're disappointed. They're confused. They walk several miles with Jesus, not knowing it's Jesus, until their hearts burn and Jesus is seen as they share a meal. And he takes and he blesses and he breaks and he gives the bread to them. So this week, we're going to take a look at another resurrection story, another resurrection encounter, this time with the rest of the disciples, minus Judas, minus Thomas, for some reason wasn't here at this time, but the risen Jesus appears to them. But following suit, as with the others, these disciples on Easter Sunday, they're not singing Hillsong, and they're not singing Up From the Grave He Arose. Instead, following suit, you find them in alarm, fright, trouble, 
and doubt. To put it mildly, the resurrection of Jesus freaks them out. It doesn't make sense. It catches them off guard. It seems too good to be true. So that's the, that's the scene on resurrection evening, Easter evening. Alarm, fright, trouble, and doubt. How does Jesus address followers and disciples who are alarmed, frightened, troubled, and doubting? You ever been there before? Alarmed, frightened, troubled, doubting. I think there's some stuff for us here. Open your Bibles to Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 36. So here's the scene. Luke tells us, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? So as Luke is telling this story, he just kind of rolls. Go ahead and stay back on that one. He just keep, he keeps rolling from the previous stories, and he keeps on going. Remember last week, Cleopas and his companion, probably his wife Mary, they are walking with Jesus for seven miles. Uh, they have all the facts. In fact, they nail the facts. They have the scriptures. But it isn't until Jesus shares a meal with them that finally their eyes are opened and they see. Also another funny, not funny, but ironic, fun connection in some ways going back to Adam and Eve in the garden as they take and eat and their eyes are opened in sin. And now you have a reversal of this now that they take and eat and their eyes are opened and they see Jesus. But you have this sudden shift then taking place with them from sadness to excitement. And then those two disciples who they walked away from Jerusalem to their home, shared a meal, they ran back to town to the place that the disciples were hiding. And with excitement and enthusiasm, those two disciples then share their experience, all that just had happened on the Emmaus Road with Jesus. So, so that's the last thing Luke has told us. So you go to the next slide here. When it says, as they were talking about these things, those are the things they were talking about. The two disciples had run back to the other disciples and were debriefing their whole experience. And they're chatting and talking and sharing and then trying to understand what all is happening. When suddenly, out of nowhere, guess who shows up in the room? Can't go wrong with that. We're in church. The answer is Jesus. Jesus shows up. Jesus comes in the room. Jesus steps in the room among the disciples and he declares peace to you. He brings a message of peace. We'll even talk more about that from John's perspective next week. But like I said, kind of introing this sermon, the, the resurrection encounter with Jesus on Easter evening, it freaks them out. They are startled. They're terrified. And I would say, understandably so. 
Because sometimes we read the, the Bible, we get so familiar with it, we're like, well, I wouldn't have been scared. Really? You understand what's happening in this time and place. A few things to keep in mind. John's gospel telling us the scene reminds us that the remaining disciples were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. They had just watched Jesus be arrested and killed and they didn't want to see a repeat performance for them. So they are behind locked doors. They're really afraid still for their very lives, afraid of the Jews coming and doing the same thing to them. So really, if anyone shows up that night, they're a little bit on edge. They're behind locked doors, which is supposed to keep people out. And all of a sudden, you're like, ah, who's that? Why are they here? Also, Do you remember the last time this group of people, do you remember where they were with Jesus, what was going down with Jesus? The last time they're with Jesus, it didn't go so well for them. They betrayed him. They denied him. They bailed on Jesus in his time of need. This is the first time that they have seen Jesus since all of that went down. You might be a little bit on edge seeing Jesus again too if the last time you were with him, he saw you run away. And then finally in verse 37, Luke tells us that they were startled and frightened because some of them thought they saw a spirit or as some translations put it, they they thought they saw a ghost. Spooky. That's another reason why they're startled. So they're a little on edge because of the Jews, what's just gone down. They're hiding behind locked doors, maybe carrying a little bit of shame from how they just had bailed on Jesus. And then finally, you're like, is that a ghost? Is that a spirit? Like, who is that? How did he get in here? Jesus walks in through locked doors and says, peace. Again, at a, at a macro level, I think it's these kind of scenes and these kind of encounters that actually lend credibility to the text, in my opinion. It lends credibility to the Jesus story because if, they, if this is an elaborate hoax, if they're, as the disciples or the apostles, making this up, you like write this part out. You don't include this part. Because clearly, they weren't expecting a resurrected Jesus. And if it's fantasy, you find a way to delete this kind of embarrassing material. It makes them look really bad, or at least really human, with sorts of, some sorts of flawed features marked with fright. They're freaked out, and it makes me trust it even more. They left that part in, how freaked out they were. Here's what I want to focus on today. As this crew of disciples, troubled, alarmed, freaked out, startled, on edge, and Jesus comes and he steps into the room and he says, peace to you. I want to focus in on what Jesus does to engage a room of frightened, fearful, startled, and unsure disciples. Because what Jesus does to them may be helpful for us too. Because if you've ever 
for a few months, a few years, a few decades followed Jesus, my guess is you've experienced some of these same emotions as well. What does Jesus do to those who are frightened, alarmed, scared, disoriented? Two things. Two things that I think are helpful and really stand as foundational for disciples of Jesus, foundational for people to experience the peace that, that the resurrected Jesus brings. Two things. Jesus brings them back to his body, and Jesus brings them back to the Bible. Both start with B, some good alliteration there. Jesus reassures them physically in his body. And Jesus recenters them on the scriptures with himself as the centerpiece and hero of the story. So tonight I want to unpack these two things. First of all, Jesus brings them back to his body. And, and I want you to see, he does this several times in a variety of ways. So after addressing their trouble and their doubts here in verse 38, uh, in verse 39, watch the invitation of Jesus. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So as Jesus walks into the room, gives them a good scare, his first instinct is to engage them with his physical body. Notice all of these invitational commands that are oriented around his body. See, touch, see, he showed them his hands and feet. Jesus is saying, hey, don't just stand off at a distance. Come here, check it out. Look, my hands that bear the scars, that bear the scars where the nails were. Check out my feet. See where I was nailed to the tree. I'm the same one that you just were with. I'm the same one who was nailed to the tree. I am back. It's me. Jesus has a body. Jesus isn't a ghost. Jesus isn't just a spirit. Ooh, floating. Jesus is not just a figment of their imagination or as though the disciples sat around the campfire long enough and thought good feelings about Jesus in memory, in memory of him so much that they imagine him back to life again. No, no, no. Jesus says, it's me touch and see. Jesus has a body. Jesus has scars. Jesus has reminders of his execution, and he's not afraid to show it to them. And he invites seeing, and he invites touching, and he invites the physical investigation of his real body by other human beings using their main senses. Jesus brings them back to his body. And as if that weren't enough, the seeing, the invitation, the touching, verse 41, one of my favorite Jesus sections, they still can't quite fully fathom it. They still can't quite put it all together. And Jesus, a hungry, resurrected Jesus, says, anybody here got some food to eat? 
Anybody here have some food? It's probably the most quoted Bible verse in front of the fridge. They got some food in here to eat. And the disciples do. They happen to have some broiled fish. If you look in the footnotes, some manuscripts also include some honeycomb as well. But at the very least, they offer him some fish. And Jesus eats the fish. And it doesn't fall through his stomach down to the ground like some cartoonish ghost. Jesus eats fish. Now, one of my true confessions, I don't drink coffee and I don't like fish. But Jesus does. This is resurrection, my friends. A real Jesus in a real body with real hands and real feet and real scars and real hunger who eats real food. This is good resurrection news. And of course, uh, the physicality of Jesus' body is important um, and was being addressed, especially in this era and seen as there were some philosophically that believed, like the Gnostics, that the body was bad and he, you know, the spiritual was good. And so there was this kind of pushing away of anything physical. So they kept coming back and I'm like, no, he really was real in a physical body. But, but even more than just some like abstract philosophical debate, I think this is good news for us to hear. I think I put this on the slide. Jesus is interested in real human beings. He is a real human being, and he has come to save real human beings. And through the story, Jesus doubles down on an embodied spirituality, which means that resurrection has everything to do with this life and this world and these bodies too. And yes, Jesus' life and death and resurrection does include a response of confession and faith, forgiveness of sins, and that has everything to do with the life to come, life after death. What happens to a human being when you die? It speaks to the soul and eternity and the kingdom of heaven and all that lies beyond the grave. But let, let's not truncate the gospel. Let's not truncate and shorten and squeeze down the good news. The good news of a resurrected Jesus is that this stuff matters too. God so loved the world that he gave his only son who took on human flesh and literally lived and died and rose again in a resurrection body that has hands and feet and scars and is hungry and eats food. Fully God, fully man. But now Jesus, as a real human being, is glorified in a resurrection body, which is the first fruits of that which is to come for you and for me. We must never forget that the gospel and repentance and resurrection has something to say about this life too. This may sound funny and it's not intended to be a joke, but Luke 24 teaches us that there is a fish-eating man right now in heaven. There's a fish-eating human who has been resurrected by the Father, and is now ascended at the right hand, which carries profound implications for our lives and our world and your bodies and creation. New creation is springing up around us. 
And the good news of Jesus has a lot to say about our hands and our feet and our scars and things like fish. Real meaning for this world too. Not j- yes, the great beyond. Yes, the life to come. But when Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and life abundantly, he's not just saying after you die. He's saying now too, life to the full. significant for our bodies and for our world. Resurrection is about real human beings experiencing real change in real bodies. Jesus is not simply peddling disembodied ethereal bliss in the sky one day, immaterial hope. But he's talking about new hope for you, for your life for your world, for your body, for your hands, for your feet, for your embodied life before God. He comes to blow apart the fake, secular faith divide, the sacred-secular divide. He blows that up. Of course, you know today is Mother's Day. This is probably by far one of the most unorthodox Mother's Day sermons ever. This is not here to preach the 10 points of why your mom's awesome. But in some ways, Jesus raised from the dead, meeting his scared, frightened disciples in a room, showing them his hands and feet and scars, and eating a meal of fish. It actually accomplishes anything that I would want to say on Mother's Day. I can speak a few minutes to moms or to those who have moms, all of us, or to those who mother others for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus, in his resurrection, the physical resurrection body of Jesus, infuses dignity into your world. The things that you do each day, matter to God. And the fact that Jesus was raised again to new life in a new resurrection body speaks about your day-to-day. So your hands and your feet and your work and your service and your eating and feeding and teaching and loving and leading and shaping your Mondays, your Thursdays, your good days, your bad days, your making, your creating, your counseling, your instructing, your fixing, your mending, your working and your tending. Jesus speaks life and the possibility of new life and new things in him through him because he lives that's not just throwaway stuff it matters too and he invites us to repent and believe and follow and watch what he does in the ordinary stuff of our lives Jesus is concerned about bringing his rule and reign into this world over food, over meals, in your work, in your play, among unborn babies, 
and single mother families and issues of justice and sexuality and addictions and broken bodies and hunger and thirst. Jesus' resurrection body is the centerpiece of hope for this created world. He says, see, touch, feel, watch me eat. I'm bringing heaven, new heaven into earth, new life into old broken creation, that new things may come in the very ordinary things of life. So Jesus, in the midst of a really freaked out group of disciples, he says, I'm going to bring you back to my body. Touch, see, watch me eat. And he brings them back to the Bible. So he, he, he tells them it's the showing, the seeing, the touching. He asks for a quick resurrection snack. But he also directs them back to a proper understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures. Next section here, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I find it really interesting. So last week, Emmaus Road experience. Jesus does two things with Cleopas and his companion. On the road, he explained the scripture interpreting all the things that were concerning himself, and then he got back to the house and they shared a meal. So they walked on the road, talked about the scriptures, went into the house and shared a meal. And now here, in this encounter with the disciples, they share a meal, he eats some fish, maybe some honeycomb for dessert, and then he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. So Jesus is really consistent in what he's doing with these people after he's come back to life again. Last week, scripture and a meal. This week, a meal and scripture. Different order and different encounters, but it's the same kind of thing both times. He calls them back to his body, and he calls them back to the scriptures, to the Bible. Because even though they were of Jewish heritage and had heard the scriptures a lot, And even though they had spent three years with Jesus being trained in the best discipleship program ever, they still didn't understand what the scriptures said. And as I'm sure you know, the Bible is a beautiful book. And as I'm sure you know, over the centuries, the Bible has been used by many to also cause great harm to a lot of people. Which has then prompted some people, even this very popular pastor who raised a ruckus recently, he from the pulpit said that we as Christians should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Just so you know, I'm not in that camp. 
I'd rather hitch than unhitch. Or there are others that like, yeah, there's just this Bible. I'm not sure about it. I should probably create some distance because there's some stuff in here that is really not culturally appropriate. But I would say that resurrection life is not found in ditching the Scriptures or unhitching from the Scriptures, but rather a call back to understanding their purpose. So for some, the Bible has been used to start wars. For some, the Bible has been used to enslave people. For some, the Bible has been used to oppress people groups. For others, the Bible has been labeled a book of fairy tales that should be dismissed. For others, it's a book of rules to be obeyed. Maybe you've heard this acronym, B-I-B-L-E, that the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. Some talk about the Bible as an instruction manual for life. But I don't know about you, the last time I read an instruction manual was only in crisis. Some say the Bible is a love letter. If it is, It's the strangest love letter ever written with purification laws and genealogies in it. Some believe the Bible and treat their Bible like a magic eight ball. And we ask questions of the Bible, put our finger down, and hopefully it will speak something to us or answer the question that we have. But even if you deal with all the different ways that people have engaged the Scriptures over the last 2,000 years. You understand that these disciples didn't understand it either. And for Jesus, it was really important as he was ushering in new creation and calling his disciples to follow him, that not only were they to be called back to his body as raised, but also that he would call them back to the Scriptures that they may understand what it really is all about. And as Jesus spent these moments with his disciples, here's what he said, here's what he did. The law, the prophets, the writings, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that those things actually find their fulfillment in him. That the Bible is revelation. It is the story of God in the world that finds fulfillment in Jesus. And where we begin to get in trouble with the Bible is when we untether Scripture from Jesus and we use it in all other sorts of ways. It's possible for us, even as maybe well-meaning Christians, to read the text and make it about ourselves as though we're the primary character in the Scriptures. Sometimes we read David and Goliath and we think that we're David and the lesson of the story is about us overcoming the giants of our life. Or we read about Moses confronting Pharaoh and we read ourselves as Moses and we think that the lesson of the story is about us finding the courage to face and confront difficult people or difficult things. 
where we read about Joseph's hard life of getting wrongly accused and thrown in prison, and we think that the Bible's point and the lesson of the story is to learn how to fight temptation and not be discouraged when things go our way. It's easy to make the Bible about a lot of things. It's easy to make the Bible about morality, to make it kind of good veggie tales morality about how to be a better person, have a better family. When ultimately, the scriptures aren't about you or me. Jesus says, the center of the scriptures is me. Moses, the prophets and the writings about me. He's the hero of the story. All those things being fulfilled in him. I'm sure I've shared this before through the years. Sinclair Ferguson, we're going to skip this one. Sinclair Ferguson tells us Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a more difficult garden whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that now cries out and speaks a better word, not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing where he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserved so that like Jacob only received the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. Pastor Tim Keller says, there are in the end basically only two ways to read the Bible. Is it basically about me or basically about Jesus? And Jesus is really clear on this. He brings his disciples back to the scriptures to show how they find their fulfillment in him. He brings them back to his body Raised again in a physical body, he brings them back to the scriptures. And he offers the vision of a better way to live our lives where he himself is the centerpiece of the story, where he is the hero, where he is the savior, where he invites us to have a Jesus lens through the scriptures and we orient our lives around him. Jesus has a high view of humanity, enough to become one. And Jesus has a high view of the scripture, enough to be the center of its story.
So I guess I would offer us, again, the gift of the story to us is the invitation in the same way back to his body and back to the Bible read through the lens of Jesus, centered on him as the focus in a way that allows our hearts to be captured again by his brilliance and by his grace and by his supremacy. Amidst the alarm and the fright and the trouble and the doubt, may we have resurrection hope. That there's a fish-eating human in heaven Resurrected as the first fruits of our faith. And he invites you to touch and see, to go back to who he is. He invites us to re understand all of life in the story back around himself as a way to make sense of the chaos around us. May we come to see and celebrate the risen Christ among us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you and praise you for all that you are and all that you have done. And Lord, I know that these first disciples were trying to figure out all that was happening around them. And they could find footing again around your resurrected body and around the Bible interpreted rightly around you. That you had to suffer. That you were raised again. And that you have called your followers to be witnesses to all that you have done. So Jesus, in all that we could do, may you invite us back to you again tonight. Back to your life and death and resurrection. Back to the physical resurrection hope of the gospel. Back to the truth of the scriptures that anchor us and ground us not just in our own self, our own feelings, our own wishes and wants, but around you, Lord Jesus, tonight. May we find our footing, our foundation in you. Thank you for the hope we have. May we have eyes to see the, the, the new creation life that you're bringing out all around us. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.